Episode four of the podcast. Um, for anyone who's uh, jumping into uh, the podcast pretty late, this is uh, Lambda Win and uh, the other side, which is Chad Hall. Um, and for the second week in a row, we're attempting to record via Skype, um, which I think this week we have a better solution for. So um, goes to show that sometimes uh, the right equipment makes a big difference. Definitely makes a big difference. Just on my end, hearing you. We're both, by the way, for anybody listening as well, we're both using the blue snowball microphone. Uh, but immediately, I can hear you have so much more presence in your voice just in my headphones. So uh, hopefully that will translate even better. Last week, you sounded a little bit like you were in a coffee can, and I think it was to the detriment of some of the things you were saying uh, in the sense that uh, <laughs> it made it sound like it was me as like the host of a show and like you were the guest who gets the shitty quality. So uh, now we will be equal as we should be this week, I think. You know, what's really funny about that, though, is that towards the end of the podcast, it sounded like I was slowly walking away from you. (laughs) (laughs) So by the end of the podcast, I was I was like 20 feet away and the door was about to close and we signed off. So it was about right. And uh, also, I noticed last week, too, uh, the importance of making sure that I'm pointed my face is pointed towards the microphone because uh, there are points where definitely I turned my head and uh, I heard it when I was editing and went, oh, what was I thinking? But uh, live and learn, live and learn. Yeah, it's funny. What's funny is uh, some of the people uh, who I have listening to the podcast on my side told me that, you know, it, it basically sounded like we were we were seasoned veterans of the whole talk show slash podcast thing, but that we somehow uh, fired our engineer at the wrong time, so we just didn't know what the hell we were doing with the equipment. But you know, so far, the, so far, the response has been pretty good on what we've been actually saying versus how it sounds when we're saying it. So that's promising, at least. Little do people know, we have zero experience at any of this. <laughs> it's obvious in the engineering, and uh, I'm glad it's not obvious in the content. But uh, so um, let's move forward. I guess I ran out of. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing to you and to everybody. I am on like four and a half hours of sleep, so I may just run out of steam in the middle of sentences today. <laughs> That's oddly appropriate. I'm kind of in the same boat, so uh, this should be a fun podcast. Part four, loopy. Yeah, <laughs> slightly drunk. <laughs> drunk on lack of sleep. Oh, hey, you know I'm gonna. I just looked down at my sheet. I'm going to bring something up just immediately because I've been trying to remember to tell you this for, mm-hmm. I think, the last, since the first episode, basically. Um, you remember in the in the first episode, we had talked about anxiety and excitement, and basically you and I had came, come to the consensus that they're kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that book that I was reading, Super Better, by Jane McGonigal, there's a part in there where she points out that studies actually show that anxiety and excitement are physiologically the same emotion. Yeah. And apparently what that translates to is because uh, the physiological response between the two is identical within the body, that whether we deal with something as anxiety or excitement is literally a choice that we make subconsciously. 
Yeah, I think um, I, I forget. I, I believe it was Robin Williams, the late Robin Williams, who is still one of my favorites of all time for pretty much everything, said that, um, you know, people used to tell him uh, to stop getting nervous before he would do auditions, before he would jump out to do his parts. And uh, at some point in his career, he figured out that without the, the nervousness, he, he wouldn't have the, the right energy to go into projects without that sense of excitement. So, you know, um, for all of you young, young actors or, you know, performers or anything like that out there, I mean, the, the nervousness is something you're always going to have. It's not about whether or not you're going to have it. It's about channeling it towards your performance in such a way that your audience gets to live the excitement with you. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they say that the the great uh, Laurence Olivier, who's considered one of the greatest actors of all time, used to throw up before every performance till the day he died. Yeah, I think uh, Al Pacino used to put quarters in his uh, shoes. I, I forget if it was Al Pacino or not, but uh, he used to put quarters in his shoes before auditions or something like that. And he used to curl his toes around uh, coins. I, I, I got to find out if that's him or not, but I know someone does that. And it's a big actor somewhere somehow with Oscars. So it's pretty cool. We should start doing that before our podcast. What research? <laughs> no, putting coins in our shoes. Oh, good point. <laughs> I yeah, guess I've I got sh- a few quarters right now. <laughs> I should start wearing shoes for the podcast, but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that that would require us to put clothing on, and I'm not sure if that's uh that's something that that's a pretty big ask at this point. Yeah, this is actually a semi-nude podcast for those who don't know. <laughs> that's why we don't do video. Exactly. It's also boring to do video. Yeah, and or uh, where you know we 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 look slightly like trolls at the moment. I'm assuming. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't. Ha- I don't think I have enough hair to consider myself a troll. I look more like a, a spiky. Horseshoe. You're, you're a troll. Twenty five years later. <laughs> yeah, I look like a spiky horseshoe. So I had a question about binge watching. Um, so with your vlog in particular, I there are, there are times where I won't watch your vlog for two or three days in a row, um, and then I will sit there and I will will watch you know four episodes straight. Um, and, you know, we've done that with quite a few of our favorite Netflix shows and um, uh, stuff like that, both good and bad. And I'm, I am I know for me it changes my experience. Um, and I'm wondering if it does the same for you to, to watch things in, in succession like that. Does it change your perception of it, your memory of it, anything like that? Of watching my own? Watching your own or watching others. Um, like I know with, with certain shows I have to binge watch it. Otherwise it just doesn't feel quite right to, right to me. Like oh, Game I get of- you. Okay. Yeah, like Game of Thrones, for example, I literally won't watch the entire season until the very end, and then I'll just binge watch every single episode. I definitely fluctuate. For sure, I do exactly what you're talking about with Casey Neistat's vlogs. There was a period of time where I would watch every day. I would watch his vlog. Um, But sometimes I just don't have time, and I find, like, I think right now I'm, like, four days behind on him. Mm -hmm. Last time time I watched his vlog, he was in South Africa. He's probably somewhere else now. Um, Right. With TV, it depends. Uh, depends on the season, the season uh, length. Uh, if it's something with a short season, yeah, I'll usually blow through it in two days. And I think that it does change the viewing experience. Uh, I think sometimes it can be a good thing. I don't. I do think sometimes also that it's to the detriment of some shows. Um, for example, when I was watching the first season of True Detective. Um, you, me, Matt, mm-hmm. Brandon, we're all watching at the same time. And we were watching every episode as it came out. And being able to digest that episode for a week and discuss it and discuss all the implications of what was going on actually really enriched that season. And I think, um, at least for me, 
even though I I don't think season two of True Detective was as bad as people say it was, uh, I do think that it was lesser because I didn't have the same experience with it. Um, sure. I I did digest it, but I had nobody to discuss it with. I knew I, I wasn't talking to anybody about it. So I think that it depends on what we're trying to get out of it. Um, obviously, if you're watching, I don't know, Fuller House, yeah, <laughs> go ahead, binge it. Who cares if, if you digest it? There's, I mean, it's not really made to be a meaty topic. I mean, a, a meaty program. But I do think... With, are you are you, are you going to watch Fuller House, man? <laughs> I don't think I can stomach it. I binged it. I watched it. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, for, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, going into that, actually, what's funny is I had that as a topic from either the second week or the first week. I didn't go into it expecting it to be anything other than what it was. It's a, it's Full House. Full House was never um, a show that anybody took seriously. Uh, it is what it is. I watched it because to me, there's a certain nostalgia to that show. Um, it was a strange a strange period of my life, at least when I was watching that, because I was very much becoming an adult. And well, I thought I was becoming an adult. I was very much an independent human being in the sense that I was listening to music and reading books that nobody else really around me was. Mm -hmm. But at that same, you know, I'm listening to black metal or whatever at the time, whatever ridiculous thing I was listening to at the time. <laughs> but I was still watching Full House because I was old enough to do those things, but I was still young enough that watching what everybody else was watching on television was a normal thing. And so in a way, watching Fuller House was a way of getting in touch with that pre-judgmental uh, side of myself where you didn't think about what you were ingesting you just sure. ingested it i would not i would definitely not tell anyone that it's a great show yeah but it is what it is if you liked the original thing in any way or it has a nostalgia to you it's worth checking out just to see if you still want to see that i laughed at certain points and there were certain <laughs> points where i cringed i, I feel like any time that um you reboot a show or you revive a show or you bring a band back after 30 years, there's going to be a sense of excitement and nostalgia and also a cringe every time. Sure, sure. sure. You know, it's funny. is uh, It's something that you were talking about last week. Uh, Full House is a great example of this. Um, how, how, how Hollywood just totally didn't take TV seriously up until about maybe 15 years ago. And, you know, even going through the shows now, like even it's it's hard to watch a sitcom now just because you you expect such a higher production value, I guess, subconsciously. Um, you know, now with with access to shows on HBO, like Game of Thrones, for example, which is basically um, a cinematic event with each episode. I don't even consider them episodes anymore. They're almost like mini movies. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and going back to, to the 90s and looking at the set pieces and looking at... Um, you know, it almost looks like they threw the scripts together like three days before, um, and you know, you know, they basically had a checklist of of certain things that they needed to hit within each script in order to fit a formula. Um, and it's it's really interesting to go back and watch a show like you know, even a show like Friends or or, or um, you know, Full House, and and then comparing them to to modern shows and seeing how dramatic of a difference there is between the script writing, the performances, you know. Um, I, I think it was uh, 
um, on on the Nerdist podcast where Josh Brolin was talking about um, having a conversation with James Spader um, and how Spader grew up during a time in which, um, you know, if you did TV, you just didn't do movies and vice versa. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to today where, you know, some of the best, some of the best writers, some of the best production crews and directors are all on TV now. Um, and it's really weird to see that, that, that difference and how quickly that changed even. Right. I, I do think also though, um, you and I have a bit of a skewed perspective in the sense that we only watch the good stuff. Um, there are definitely some horrible, horrible sitcoms (laughs) on television. Uh, I was over a friend's house. This must have been like a year ago. And they put on a sitcom and it was something that was new, something that was fresh. I, I wish I could remember what it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's probably better that I don't because people might go watch it. Um, <laughs> and it was <laughs> it was awful. I mean, the performances were off. The comedy was off. The script was horrible. Um, so I, I think in a way it depends on, you know, I think um, – when you look at a show like Golden Girls, for example, it's, yeah. it's a classic sitcom. Uh, and it's a classic sitcom that does exactly what we're talking about in both ways. It um, it pushed the envelope in a lot of ways on topics, but it, nobody had really pushed the envelope as far as what you could say and what you could do on television. I'm sure somebody could correct me on that, but for the most part, um, shows like that, shows like Full House, um, I think the reason that they have that feeling that you were talking about um, – is because to a certain degree, there was still a lot of fear of doing things differently on television. You know, HBO and Netflix and all these alternative uh, mediums for people to post, not post, to broadcast shows were not available or not around or not as prevalent. So mm-hmm. if you didn't make it on mainstream television, you were dust, you were gone. You were, you know, you couldn't put your show on the internet and be an internet TV show. Sure. So there was more risk involved. So they could push it with topics, but they definitely didn't push it with depth in the way. Sure. I mean, obviously, MASH and things like that did, but those were rarities. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, when you watch the Golden Girls and you look at the sets and you go, what the hell? I mean, it's so obvious <laughs> that they're not in a real house. Yeah. And there's moments, you know, like if you watch that show and I have watched that show a lot. Um, I grew up on that show. I still love that show. I still think it's one of the funniest things that was ever put on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there are points where even the floor plan of their house changes. You know, like not to a visual, the way it looks was always consistent. But where one door leads might not lead to that same room later. And there was just you're right. There wasn't that much thought put into that. And I think exactly what you um, what you were saying is all of that learning that people did in film, um, particularly in the 70s and the early 80s, a lot of experimentation, a lot of learning done in film spread into television. So so now you have those thoughts of, like we were talking about last week, continuity. All of those kind of things are now thought about in television, whereas before it was like, we got to do one of these a week. Let's just rip this sucker out. You know, they, they would try to make it as good as they can, but it was more about quantity than quality sure Uh, and there was there's almost a bubblegum entertainment aspect to it too in the sense that because you never really expected a certain level of depth um 
there was there was a lot more of a suspension of disbelief, I think, because it was more fanciful. You know what I mean? Like it was more whimsical in its nature. And so because of that, you know, when you watch like Married with Children and, and you know, um, a staircase changed or, or items in the kitchen completely moved around, like you didn't really care because it wasn't important. You know what I mean? Right. Um, as opposed to these days where we have such a hyper real experience when it comes to some of our TV shows. Um, a good example I have of that is, um, you know, Walter White from Breaking Bad, um, where every time he'd kill somebody, um, he would take on a certain characteristic or mannerism or have, um, you know, some kind of object that he would maintain from that character pretty much for the length of the show. So if he killed someone in season one or season two, he would literally carry that that particular attribute through the entire length of the show. And I thought stuff like that was fascinating with some of the better shows. Like it just shows the the care and dedication that was put into to creating a complete world. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And going back to one of our examples from before, How I Met Your Mother as well. Yeah. Um, the way that that goes back and forth through time of, you know, they're mentioning something that happens in the future while he's in the, you know, he's way in the future, but then he talks about something in the past, just continue. I mean, when you're telling a, when you're telling something from a past tense, you know, you have the narrator as an adult talking to his children about when he was younger, but then that is moving through time as well. Just the continuity and keeping that straight is impressive in and of itself. I think actually those two shows would be, two of the greatest examples of continuity on television, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. And the, you know, it's, it's, it, if we take it a step further too, I mean, there are certain, and it, this isn't exclusive to, to shows, um, you know, a lot of movies pull this off too as well. Um, but I love movies and shows that completely build worlds that don't compromise on, on how different they are from the reality that we understand. Um, you know, there's some shows that are obviously grounded in, in, in some sort of a relatable reality that, that we can jump back to. Um, but like there are certain movies, like I, the one that sticks out to me is, um, do you, do you remember Minority Report? Um, the movie? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the greatest movie. I mean, it was pretty good, but I love how complete that world was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, how, 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 com- how completely divergent it was from, from everyday life as we know it, but how, certain things were made to be so ubiquitous that the characters just operated as though they were normal parts of their lives. I just thought it was kind of amazing and how how complete that world was. I think that's one of the things that I love about science fiction is a good piece of science fiction is in and of itself is a piece of philosophy, a piece of social commentary, and it's a great piece of fantasy. Sure. Um, and then when it's done poorly, obviously, it's the opposite. I guess you could say that about any genre, but yeah, I, I agree that when, when you see, like, for example, when we've, we've talked about this book before, but reading the book Dune, there's an example of creating a world that's just completely outside of the realm of anything we understand, but completely mm-hmm. relatable and utterly seamless, utterly seamless. Yeah, because it has because it has its own rules and it never breaks those rules to make us feel better. <laughs> right. And I, I feel like there was a trend, which is breaking as far as I can tell recently, um, but there was a trend for a while in films of over-explaining everything because they were so afraid that the audience was going to be lost, that they would explain everything. You know, you had medical examiners telling uh, a, a police detective how uh, a hematoma works. It's like, you guys have done this together hundreds of times. You both know that. 
you're explaining that yeah. for us and yeah. it, it it ruins that suspension of disbelief for me mm-hmm. but sure 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 yeah i i totally agree i love it when shows don't explain things to me <laughs> well, of course there's the extreme of you know uh from what i've heard when they were making inception they got to a certain point where they're like mm-hmm. um nobody's going to understand this. So we need to put a little bit more in here. Yeah. So you get every once in a while, you got to know when to throw that lifeline. Um, yeah. And I, I, there are certain shows that I think because of how dense the subject matter is, or because of how, how, how completely out of, out of our, our realm of reality that, that, that particular thing, like house, for example, I mean, house was, you know, a show in which every so often they had to explain something. Otherwise we just have no idea where the hell they're going with it. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that, that overall, um, the movies are shows that don't explain most things, even the things that are on the confusing side. Like I, I go back to minority report, like there's, there's a, in the beginning of the movie, when Tom Cruise goes back into his house and, you know, he's, he's interacting with, with, with his house in a way that is completely different from anything that we've ever seen in modern day. Um, there's a sense of, of comfort that he has in it. There's a sense of familiarity to it that makes you just assume that that's just the way things are supposed to be. And I think that's, that's really comforting as a viewer. Like you just, you just expect that your characters are, are not bewildered by their own world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, and to a certain degree, maybe not even to a certain degree, completely, you could say the same, same thing about, uh, historical dramas, anything that goes backwards. Sure. And, uh, that's a testament to the actors to be able to, um, affect a body language that shows that comfort because we do is at least with the main characters we do subconsciously rely on them as our sense of comfort in a film Mm -hmm. which is why i think um it's such a risky thing to have an anti-hero in a film because that's denying people the comfort that they're looking for you know or an unreliable narrator those those things rely on turning those on our, on their head um a great example of something i'm gonna go on a small tangent here okay you've seen amelie i would assume correct oh yes absolutely um have you ever seen he loves me he loves me not um it's with audrey tattoo as well as a french film no uh, uh it's not the same as happenstance I, the, she made a whole bunch of those um and i don't remember if i've seen that one but i was on a audrey tattoo slash uh jean-pierre renault jean uh, Jean Pierre Jean Pierre Um I was on that kick for a while, so I think I probably did bin, uh, you know, binge one of those movies at some point, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. It was a brilliant use of something that I had never seen done before, and I don't think I've ever seen done since. And if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry to everybody. I'm probably going to ruin this movie for you. Um, but the chance of any of you actually watching it are pretty slim. So, <laughs> so Amelie's character is completely adorable. The whole point of the movie is that she's lovable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loves me. He loves me not. It's not a, a Jeannot film, but it, um, it is Audrey Tattoo. And whoever wrote, directed, or script, I don't know which of those three made this brilliant choice. One of them made a brilliant choice to bring her in because of Amelie. So that mm-hmm. you're watching this film and you automatically assume that she is sweet, adorable, and lovable because you know her as Amelie. And she's a psychotic bitch. 
<laughs> and it doesn't reveal itself until a good percentage of the movie. So they've used another film to set you up with expectations. Oh, that's genius. I got to see that. That sounds great. It's like the great story of uh, Henry Fonda on the, on the set of Once Upon a Time in the West with Sergio Leone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He shows up on the set. Henry Fonda's agreed. Henry Fonda, for those of you who don't know, because you're young, uh, Henry Fonda was the great hero of many, many, many movies, most of which were Westerns. Mm -hmm. And he had these vivid, vivid blue eyes that when the Technicolor came out, the man's eyes were glowing on the screen. But he always played the hero. And Sergio Leone made spaghetti Westerns. He brings in um, he's most known for doing uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Clint Eastwood. Uh, he brings in Henry Fonda in this movie, and he brings him in as the villain. He wants to play him against type. So Henry Fonda starts preparing for the role. And when he shows up on set, he's got a big black handlebar mustache, and he's got contacts in that turn his blue eyes into black. And Leone looks at him and goes, No! <laughs> no, he makes him take off the contact or take out the contacts. He makes him shave the mustache. He wants him to look like Henry Fonda. Yeah. And the whole purpose of that is there's a scene when that character is first revealed. You're looking and there's Charles Bronson. Charles Bron Bronson plays the hero in this film. And he's mm -hmm. down um, below some brushed up hills and somebody's firing at them. And you know that whoever's firing at him is the villain of this film. And the camera is on Charles Bronson as the villain is descending upon him. And the camera turns around. And it's the first time you see Henry Fonda. Nice. And when you see Henry Fonda, he looks like Henry Fonda. So anybody who has ever seen a Henry Fonda film, which is at that time most of America, when the camera turns around to reveal the villain and they see Henry Fonda, Sergio Leone gets that shock of everybody in America going, holy crap, it's Henry Fonda as the villain. That's amazing. And the most brilliant thing about that casting of that was Henry Fonda's eyes that were so blue that everybody fell in love with. Sergio Leone saw something in them that nobody else saw. With Henry Fonda as a villain, those beautiful blue eyes become cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh, that's pretty amazing. I'm not sure why I went on that tangent, but I, I just had to share that story. <laughs> ah, makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, what's what's funny is there's... I, I was just having, I have a hard time, and maybe it's because the of the era in which I grew up, or maybe it's because of my 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 need to see heroes be heroes. But I have a hard time watching shows in which I I dislike the main character, even if it's a brilliant movie, um, and I, or or a show. Um, it's probably not the greatest example, but uh, American Horror Story. I know a lot of people love that show, but I detest it with every fiber of my being. <laughs> Um, and the reason why is because I hate everyone. I hate everyone. There's not a single person in any of the cast in any of the, the shows that hasn't been um, some kind of, of, of selfish, crappy version of themselves. And they're all there's there's no altruism. There's no there's no sense of greater good. Like it's it's just obnoxious to me. Like it, and 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 I know that they're you know it's funny because I can't think of any movies right now that 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 have that. Uh, but I'm but I'm sure that I can't remember them because I don't like them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so maybe maybe it's my inherent need to to have a, a hero, even in movies like I remember, um, you know, out of sight, 
um, which was a, a movie with Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez and Don Cheadle. And it was a great movie. I loved it. But even though, you know, Clooney's character is like this, this, you know, ex bank robber and he's kind of got a dark past and all this kind of stuff. I liked him because he was still a good guy, even though he's a bad guy. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like I always, I always inherently need my good guys to stay good guys. Otherwise I lose interest in their motivations. I just don't care. You know what I mean? How'd you make it through Breaking Bad? Uh, because I understood why Walter White was doing what he was doing. And, and, and I, 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 I related to his, his choices based on, um, based on his mortality and based on trying to take care of his family. I mean, ultimately he takes a a hard turn to the dark side, but right about season two. Yeah, exactly. But I think, but I think there's a very, um, and I also really liked Aaron Paul's character, but that's beside the point. I mean, Aaron Paul, I think, is an underappreciated phenom in the acting world. And I think in the next 15 or 20 years, we're going to get to see him blossom into one of the better actors in Hollywood. But I hope you so. know, watching Walter White's transition um, from light to dark to darker to darkest um, was was understandable. Like, a, you, you kind of got it, you know, like a desperate man put in horrible circumstances trying to take care of his family even though it spiraled out of control you could understand where he was coming from and the fear associated with you know dying before you're able to take care of your family i mean what do you, what do you do you know right i think that also i mean one of the reasons everybody talks about breaking bad is one of the greatest shows ever made is because as far as i know i cannot think of anything else where you watch the hero become the villain yeah. And it's very gradual and once again there there cannot be enough credit um given to the acting in that show um to slowly transition not only the character for the character to slowly transition but for everyone around him and their perception of him to slowly transition as well. Sure. Um that's a credit to Brian Cranston because I mean what did he do before that? He's he you know, speaking of, of guys who are not playing their types, he started at his as his type and then transitioned out of his type. Right. And you also, know? I mean, most of the stuff he did was comedy, which when you look at the case uh, to bring back Robin Williams, who is also a favorite of mine, mm-hmm. it's hard to argue that uh people who are brilliant comedians end up even more brilliant as dramatic actors because comedy oh, is harder. You know, and I and I think about Robin Williams. Um, I, I mean, I, I need I want to go back to the Cranston thing in a second, just because I, I feel like there's there's another very important reason why I related to Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the you know uh, from the Robin Williams perspective, like the movies that I really remember from him are the ones where. Um, you know, he plays more of a dramatic role. I mean, some of his comedies are great. Don't get me wrong, but I remember, you know, Awakenings. Oh, I love Awakenings. It's one of the best movies um ever um it was it was it was one of the few movies that actually made me cry uh because it was such a hard movie to watch and i still think it's one of de Niro's best performances as well it's a true story um, also, too what's that it's a true story as well oh yeah yeah that's right um also the fisher king remember that movie oh god <laughs> tom waits is in that movie Oh yeah, that's right. Tom Waits is in that one too. It's funny how we always end up pulling back some of our our we have we have a certain group of main characters in the podcast, and I feel like Tom Waits is one of those. Yeah, guys. Tom Waits, David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much anybody who ever wrote a decent book. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but going back to what you were saying, how did you make it through Breaking Bad because of Brian Cranston's? You know, you said you had more you want to say on that. Well, yeah, because I, I feel like um, Walter White's character, you know, starts out as a guy who just means really well and is trying to, you know, um, 
is really trying to, to, to provide a solution for his family in the only way that he can. And it required him to do some pretty scary, illegal stuff in order to pull that off. Um, and I feel like I feel like when I was going through the worst of what I was going through, I made a lot of choices that that changed people's perceptions of me as a person. But it was the same kind of thing with Walter White's character, where a lot of the people in his life, like his wife, his son, um, you know, they, they held on to these certain perceptions of him and they held on to him for a really long time. Even even as they watched him descend into darkness and a little bit of madness, they still held on to the possibility that he was the guy that they, they knew and loved, even though he was slowly turning into someone else. You know what I mean? And I think that that when people hold on to that much faith in you as a person and, you know, you continually break that faith when you finally lose them, you comp- you lose them in a much harder way than you would have if you had just met them on the street. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And also, I think that something that's understated in Breaking Bad is people don't... When you get to the end of that show, you should really go back and watch the beginning again. Because all of that arrogance is there. Yeah. It's there from the beginning. Just because he's a meek and feeble character at the beginning... Um, who's in a hard situation, he's not in that hard of a situation. What we often forget is the reason he turns to crime is because he's too proud to take the money that's offered him. Yeah, He's true. too damn arrogant. So in, in reality, he's not in a situation that doesn't have a solution. He's in a situation that he denies the solution that's available to him because he's too arrogant. And that arrogance is what we watch grow throughout the seasons of that show. As every step, you know, he becomes very, um, now he starts taking pride in being this. And, the, and, and that's why Aaron Paul is such an important character. I think yeah. in reality that Brian Cranston gives us no grounding and he's mm-hmm. not supposed to. Yeah. Aaron Paul is our grounding and yeah. he is, he, he's the heart. Yeah. And, and everything that we see is, is, is how he is bouncing off of Aaron Paul. Mm-hmm. And that's why the show ends the way it does, um, because it's that final moment of, OK, this guy has been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed into places that he never wanted to go. Yeah. And now he turns on him. Yeah. He's the hero. So what we're watching is someone we think is the hero become the villain and someone we think is a sidekick become the hero. Yeah, and I mean, if if you were to pay attention to that show, because I've I've now probably watched that show three full times through, um, and the more you watch it, the more you care less about Walter White and pay attention to him less, and the more you just watch how how complete Aaron Paul's transformation is from the very beginning to the very end of the show. Right. You know, and how and how there's a certain sense of 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 hope that comes along with with his story that I think is really unique. Um, among the Hollywood stories that have been told in the last decade or so. You know what I mean? It's really, really interesting how they pulled that off. And also, uh, often underrated performance as well is Skyler, his mm-hmm. wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The many, many transitions that that woman has to go through as a character mm-hmm. to deal with all of this that's going on. And I mean, if, if anybody on that show... Um, she probably had one of the most difficult performances in the sense that she was ping-ponging. Yeah. Um, everybody else was a gradual change. Hers was um, more schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. One day she's this, 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 because she had so many, as a character, her character had so many concerns. Yeah. Myself, my child, the world, 
my husband, my marriage, law, uh, money, all the, I mean, she's literally ping ponging between them. And, uh, I can't remember the actress's name, which is awful because uh, <laughs> she's fantastic. And I've seen her in other things. She's always good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rectify that by doing a search right now <laughs> and saying her name so that, uh, I don't feel like such a jackass. And, and the tough thing about her character, too, from a performance standpoint, was that, you know, there are times where she would flip-flop three or four times in the same episode. Yeah. You know, because she had to play a certain character to a certain person in order to maintain certain illusions for people. And it's it's fascinating to see uh, just just such a, a dramatic transformation from, from literally one scene to the next with her. Um, where she would have to maintain completely separate trains of logic for 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 that given version of who she needed to be, you know. Exactly, and her yeah. name is Anna Gunn. I don't know how Anna, I forgot that. That's right. That's right. Anna Gunn, and also, if you guys have watched that show, everybody loves Dean Norris as Hank. Yeah, <laughs> Hank is also a hero in that show. Yeah, true, true. And and it, and there's times where that show. Another brilliant thing about that show, where the show turns you against hank yeah yeah and you love hank and hank is never hank is not a dynamic character sure hank is always hank he's got a heart and he's the i I think in a way he's the um he's the antithesis of aaron paul's character um as far as heart goes Mm -hmm. um jesse is willing to change because of his heart hank doesn't change because of his heart Mm-hmm. And for those of you just tuning in, this is over analysis of Breaking Bad with Chad and Lamb. <laughs> Dude, I'm not even done. I have one more thing to throw on. Please do. <laughs> I could talk about this all day. I, I think the thing that you you mentioned about you know um, the show writers convincing us that Hank was you know turning us against Hank was also the the the, the long descent of Hank of of Walter White and how they forced us to root for him, even though he's kind of an evil bastard. You know what I mean? And and throughout the course of the show, like we're still rooting for this bad guy to somehow pull some of this stuff off. And 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 in 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 watching the show over and over again, like I feel there's a there's a certain dirtiness that I feel to rooting for Walter White. You know what I mean? Right. And and and, and it's genius in how it pulled that off without making me realize it in the moment. You know what I mean? Essentially it's a television show that catches you with your pants down. Yeah, the whole way through. <laughs> yeah, and it catches you with your pants down, but then it staples them to the table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, not to the table, to the floor, unless you're standing on a table for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's shift gears a second because I do want, for those people who tune in for our techie nerd stuff, mm-hmm. um, we should talk about the uh, Apple stuff that happened on Monday, both um, regarding product releases but also regarding the fbi and privacy honestly i don't know a whole lot about um either um i I, i've been kind of in a bubble for the last uh, 48 hours because we had some crazy stuff happen at work so i'm going to be hearing some of this stuff for the first time and reacting uh pretty cleanly uh that's always i i always love our genuine reactions and for those that don't know we don't tell each other what we're going to talk about <laughs> before we no, start recording <laughs> that literally never happens going back to the metaphor of catching people with their pants down 
Yep, I have no pants on, but that's fine. Um, by the way, this coffee is fantastic. I feel awake and alive. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's start with what I find more important, which is the privacy thing. Mm-hmm. Apple was set to have a hearing um, in the trial, not the trial, but the pending possible trial um, between them and the FBI. And that was to happen on Tuesday. On Monday, Apple announced their new products. At the beginning of the product announcement, Tim Cook took about, I would say, three, three and a half minutes to address the privacy thing. And um, you should really just look it up to find out everything he said, because I'm not going to boil it down correctly. But basically what he said is, um, we never expected to be in this position um, of having to defend ourselves against the government. But we do feel that this is an important issue and we are not going to shrink at the threats. Nice. Which I thought was a very ballsy statement. A lot of people, of course, have criticized him as being a publicity hound. But when you're fighting your own government over something like this, I think you need the <laughs> you need the publicity because sure. you want people's eyes on the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was Monday. Tuesday or late Monday, I'm not positive exactly at which time, the lawyers for the government um, asked the judge to dismiss the hearing, Mm. and the judge granted it. Mm. The government backed down. Wow. Now, this can be viewed two ways, and I've seen many, many ways, but the two things, the reason they said they backed down, they said, we don't need to pursue this anymore because we have found somebody who will crack the phone for us. We don't need Apple to do it. Which my initial impulse on that was, I think they're lying. Um, They actually played a very, very high-risk game of chicken with Apple. Mm -hmm. And Apple beat them with publicity. And Apple had better lawyers, from what I heard. Um, Today, I read that the person who's cracking their phone is some Israeli company, which is probably the Mossad. Who knows? Uh, And the other way to view it, some people viewed it through this lens, is um, this is the government's way of stopping the hearing because they know that they weren't going to do well with the hearing and trying to let the publicity die down so that they can re-attack this issue when people are not paying attention. So your thoughts? I don't understand why the FBI did this so publicly in the first place. Um, like I remember in one of the companies I previously worked for, um, one of the solutions that we did for, for, it was essentially cracking hard drives was what we were doing. Um, you know, getting through the layers of encryption and sometimes they were for, um, and they were for the NSA and the FBI and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't that glamorous of a job. It was basically creating a machine, um, that would allow them to, to read deleted data off of hard drives. Um, and they did it very quietly. There was never any press about it. There was never any real, um, you know, um, there was never any real, real fanfare about the fact that we were literally making a machine that could take your old hard drive and take all of the, the information that you thought you had destroyed and recover every last bit of it. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so I don't quite understand why, why the FBI did this so publicly in the first place. I believe that they misjudged the public. I think that they tried to pull another Patriot Act um, using a horrible, horrible tragedy 
um, mm-hmm. to get people to give up on certain uh, rights and and it didn't work. It didn't work for them. They thought that um, they I think they expected the public to go, yes, this shooting was horrible and we will OK anything that you can do. And um, they didn't expect people to see through the ruse um, and see that um, it was really a matter of privacy and that the opportunists in this situation were actually the government. The government sure. were taking an opportunist position of, okay, and and I think of anything, that's something that I don't know that's been said enough. That is horrible, horrible taste on the part of the government. Mm-hmm. What a disrespectful thing to do to the victims of that travesty and the survivors and the families of those victims to use them as an opportunity to push through something that they've wanted for a very long time. That's that. I mean, that's like uh, using the World Trade Center tragedy as a construction path. You know, oh, well, that was horrible. But now that we're talking about that, let's build some awesome buildings. Um, I just I think that they they misread the public horribly and it blew up in their face and they didn't expect Apple to stand up. They expected Apple to shirk as many, many, by the way, many companies have done. Yeah. Um, That's something that's not publicized very often, but many companies have allowed these things to happen. Microsoft at points being one of them. Well, I mean, if you look at it historically, I mean, I think one of the reasons why um, they thought they could pull this off was because of what, um, because of the legislation and because of the, 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 the attitudes following um, 9-11, um, you know, I think that there was a very strong sense that the public would back them on um, if they if they wave their, their hands in the air and said, this is all about security and this is all about keeping people safe. But I think this is one of those instances where, um, you know, I, 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 it's one of the quotes that I remember from way back when um, concerning war, which is, you know, um, any government inherently masters the ability to uh, win one war just in time for the next. And what that is meant to mean is that, um, you know, they, they just didn't quite understand the battlefield that they were they were about to jump onto when they were approaching the subject. I mean, the Internet won on this one, you know, and the age of information won on this one in the sense that people now have so much more access to information um, and a, a more broad understanding of what might be going on, despite the fact that we feel regardless of how we may feel about people being smarter or dumber than they have been historically, um, at, at the very least, they have more access. And I think that level of access allows people to understand subjects like this much, much better. Um, and even some of the reactions that I saw, you know, not just from the Internet in general, but just from friends and people I've talked to, was very much against the FBI having access to to all of our devices. You know what I mean? I, I think more so than anything, this is a tangible, like with 9-11 and the Patriot Act and all that kind of stuff, there was, there was a less tangible understanding of how invasive the government could become. But I think with the Apple situation, um, there's a very tangible representation in the sense that that device you have in your pocket can now be hacked. You know what I mean? And so because of that, I think people had a much easier way of understanding what it would mean if they were to give up that level of privacy. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I I feel like um, there's a strange... I don't know even the exact word for it, but there's a there's a strange situation in the fact that the thing that's being uh, that's uh, they're attempting to restrict or get access to is also the means with which people 
are educating themselves on the issue. Sure. You know, um, they're inextricably tied together. I I guess that's the best way that I could say it. The two Mm -hmm. are so tied together that um, that's why they misjudge it so horribly is they can use other things as an example um, in the past, but it wasn't the same um, because they, the issue and the medium were not the same thing. Sure. It's not as invasive. And I, I feel like the, the best analogy I, I, I was, I said this to a friend of mine who was, you know, um, for the FBI having access to their phones. And I, I basically, I asked him a simple question, which was um, in order to protect your house, um, I need the keys to your house and I need to be able to come into your house anytime I want in order for you to be protected or in order to feel protected. Would you give me the keys to your house if I could, if I could, if I could, if I could at least give you the illusion of protection, would you do that? And he said, absolutely not. And I, and then the, the retort that I had was, how is that any different from giving the FBI access to your mobile device? How is that any different? Right. You know? I mean, it, it, let's put it this way. Also, it's a similar metaphor. We would all be safe from everything if we all lived inside of in, inside of see-through houses. Sure. But do you really want to poop and change your clothes where everybody can see? Exactly. And that's it, what it comes down to is is going back to that Benjamin Franklin thing. You can't have both. So which one are you willing to sacrifice? Sure. And I understand. I mean, as much as we can get upset about it, as a human, we both understand both sides of the issue. Sure. It's just a matter of how we weigh them. Um, anybody, anybody can see why somebody would want to feel safe against being shot in public. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be shot in public. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to be afraid that when I go to a movie or I go to work or any of the or my children go to school, any of the many places that people have been killed in recent times. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel that way, but I also don't want to give government complete access to everything um, that I say and do. It's just mm-hmm. not, um, it's not a good trade for me. I, I guess I would rather feel unsafe and that's yeah. it's horrible to have to say that we have to pick one of those two. Yeah, I hear you though. I mean, it, it's it's it comes down to the simple question of uh, would you rather feel unsafe or invaded? You know what I mean? Like that's that's the thing that I, I can't get over. You know, when I go to sleep at night, like I don't I don't want the thought of my government being in my device as I sleep as part of it. Doesn't make me feel any safer. It makes me feel unsafe in a very different way. You know what I mean? And taken to the uh, to the utmost to the nth degree, as they say, mm-hmm. they both end up becoming the same thing. Yeah, exactly. If so we are I, so protected, we will feel unsafe. Yeah, exactly. And I and it's I don't. Fascism. I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to live in a police state. You know what I mean? Like that's just the, the the the. It's inherently a very quiet way of enforcing martial law, and I don't like the. You know, I know that's kind of a stretch, and there's probably people who are going to bash me for even saying something like that. But but that's what it feels like to me. It feels like the the government now has carte blanche to do whatever they want with my information, and I just don't. Even if they don't have any legal right to use it against me the fact that they know it bothers me you know what I mean? the fact that we know for a fact that uh people in the nsa and people in other intelligence communities were having fun sending dick other, other people's dick pics to each other and laughing at people's genitals yeah that's crazy that, that alone's nauseating that, exactly i mean and that is just 
And that's not even that's not even incriminating. You know what I mean? Like that's just I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that that that, that people forget, um, I think, when it comes to government institutions and and I know this I know this in a weird way from having worked with some people who are, you know, in, in the FBI and the NSA that they're just people like you and I, right. you know what I mean? They're, 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 they go to, you know, um, go home to their friends, have a beer, watch a TV show and hang out. And the, yeah. the thing that I always, I, I always throw back at people is, would you give your friends access to your phone? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, would you give your friends your keys? Sure. There are certain friends you can probably trust with that level of responsibility, but how many people can you really allow that level of, of, you know, invasiveness into your life and still feel safe about what you have, you feel safe about your information. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a scary thought to think that I, you know, I love you to death, Chad, but I mean, it would freak me out if you had access to my phone 24 hours a day. Absolutely. And I, I think that that that's exactly correct. What you're saying is that people automatically assume that the people who are dealing with our information have a higher level of maturity than the rest of us. But obviously from what I was saying about this exchange that we know this happened, exchange of other people's nudes, we're dealing with frat level and maturity at certain levels of these high government um, information agencies. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, but I, I don't, I, this is not to demean any of those people. Like, you know, I'm sure plenty of the, the, the people who work in the FBI and, and the NSA and the, the, you know, are all well-meaning people who are good people. But right. We forget that they're just people. You know what I mean? They We, we can't hold them to a higher standard than, than we would hold ourselves because they are people just like us. They just have they just happen to have a job in which um, they're required to, to, to maintain a certain level of diligence about maintaining security in the country. But, but at the end of the day. What it really comes down to is that they're just people, and I, I'm not I'm not taking anything away from what they do or who they are as people. I'm just reminding them that they walk among us. Um, so they, it might be the same guy who's making, you know, some kind of Kardashian joke in a donut shop. Like I might work for the NSA, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't want that guy to have the keys to my house. And and <laughs> you know? need I refresh everyone on the fact that even the highest level, a woman who is running for president. Uh, is being investigated by the FBI while she's running for president for having highly high classified documents in a place that she shouldn't have had them. Yeah. So even the top, I mean, so if you can look at people at the top, you know, like the Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. If 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 people at that level can't keep this information safe, the highest level. Why should we expect them to keep our text messages, our photos, or any of our emails any more secure, if not hundreds of times less secure? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of trust and expectation that we should have. And it's not possible. Like sure. you said, they're humans. And it's not possible. All it takes is one dude to make one silly mistake and your stuff's all over the internet. Yep. That's it. Just one dude. One off day. He could be the best dude in the world. All he needs is one day. One day where him and his wife get in a fight. He's li- running on three hours of sleep. And maybe his kid's sick. Mm-hmm. And he just makes one mistake. And yep. and that's not... I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, also, going back to the public opinion on this. Um, at one point, I, I assume... I guess I... <laughs> I don't remember doing this. But apparently, I emailed my congresswoman. <laughs> over the Apple privacy issue and she replied to me. 
No way. Yeah, well, I mean, it it doesn't. It says dear friend, so I'm pretty sure it's not <laughs> not a personalized email. It's something that she sent out to anybody, I guess, who emailed her about this. Uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, mm-hmm. serving California's 19th. Um, but she sent a nice little pie chart here, which is shaped like a donut. Um, Donuts. Uh, do you agree that forcing backdoors into encrypted programs and services could set a dangerous precedent? Nice. 76% said yes. Mm. 17% said no. And oddly enough, 7% said other. And I'm not quite sure what other would mean in that situation. I guess it's yeah. it's the agnostic version of that answer. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a pretty straightforward yes or no answer. Um, that's slightly concerning. That number's higher than I thought it would be. It's a, it's a non-committal answer, I guess, is maybe what it yeah. is. They didn't know. Well, that gives me some level of hope, though. You know that people that people aren't willing to sacrifice their security so easily, um, and and it, it's personal security for the the you know back to what you said a couple of weeks ago, uh, personal security for the sake of of the illusion of overall security. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and I think that that's that's pretty telling. I mean, that's and that's sure we live in a pretty liberal place in California, but I don't think that that's. Yeah, I'm sure in other demographics it's it's skewed one way or the other, but I'm 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 sure that the overall opinion is at least, you know, sixty five thirty five um, for for maintaining some level of privacy. It, uh, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many people in the Trump camp, and Trump is in the other camp on this that it's just, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now, but because <laughs> anything in that direction just ends up in churning in my stomach um so what i will do is i will redirect us to the other part of the apple conversation which is the mediocre product launch (laughs) launch. that that just seems to be the case these days well uh, first of all it's worth pointing out that uh beginning of the year product launches for apple have always been the mediocre product launch Sure, sure. It's always the September one that's the big one. Exactly, exactly. What they announce in the summer that they say is coming in the fall is usually the new hard, uh, the new hardware of phones. Yeah. Sometimes a new computer, and always new software. That's always the exciting one. This is always this is the one. The way I look at it is that's for the people who want the new, the hot, the you know, the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. This product launch is for the rest of America. Yeah. And and I think that's exactly what if you look at what Apple released, um, which I'll tell you since you didn't see it, um, that's exactly what this is. This is um you know, they they've been criticized a little bit for this, but I think that um I give them credit for doing this because I think um they're actually listening to their demographic. Mm. Um so the new phone that they've released, which I think went on sale today, today's Thursday, right? Yep. Went on sale today, and it's already going to be available in like four days. So it's a pretty fast product launch. Um, you remember what the five iPhone 5 looked like, right? Yes, I do. Okay, this is the same exact body. So uh, I'm not sure if they recycled the bodies from the old phones. Um, but this is the iPhone 5 SE. And it looks just like that. Um, I'm not going to remember everything, and I might get some of this wrong because I obviously did not memorize this. But it has it is as fast as the iPhone 6s, which means it's faster than my phone from last year, even though this is a five. Um, it's four inches uh, being in that size, of course. Um, it has um, always on Siri, so you can do Hey Siri without having to push the button. 
Oh, cool. It has the um, fingerprint scanner, but it's the slower one from, I would assume, my phone. Or maybe yeah. maybe the scanner's from the 5. I'm not sure. But it's not as fast as the current one, which is not that big of a deal. It does not have the 3D touch options. Mm-hmm. Uh, 12 megapixel camera. And it's got wonderful battery life. So basically what this phone is, is um, when you get into a two-year contract, this is the phone you can get for free now. Crap. Or you can buy it for $300 outright. God, I wish I had known about this product release because we just got Crystal a uh, 6S and she hates the form factor. How long ago did you get it? Uh, Might just be outside of the 30 days now. <laughs> I'd, I'd call today and, and check. You might be able to. Okay, yeah, I mean, that, that would make a heck of a lot more sense because that's the biggest, her biggest complaint was if she could have all of the features of the iPhone 6 inside of the iPhone 5 package, she would be much happier because she has smaller hands. So she has I mean, she's, part of, she's part of that one chunk of the customer base that was calling for a phone that wasn't as massive as the 6 or the 6S and or I, the 6 Plus. That's definitely my point here is like a lot of people are saying, oh, whoop-de-doo, it's an old phone, whatever. Number one, there's a lot of people, including our buddies at Back to Work, that think that the iPhone 5 is the best form factor that was ever made for the iPhone. Oh, I, I agree with that, actually. I, really? I, I still think my 6 is kind of big. I, 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 I'm I not crazy. I mean, obviously, I made the choice to have the giant phone. But the actual shape of the 6, I love. Mm-hmm. The way it feels in my hand is fantastic. Um, sure. The problem I had with the 5 was those edges cut mm-hmm. into my fingers a lot. I, I see. Um, but... Apple has really, I mean, what they've done here is, you know, you had a, a certain crust of the population that was like going for these top tier phones that they're releasing, especially these size ones, these large size ones. Um, but they weren't really making anything available for the rest of the population. You know, people who don't have that, uh, you know, $600 or $30 a month for a lease, they don't have that. This phone is, like I said, $300 or free with contract or $17 a month. Jeez. And a lot of people are going to pick this. If, if, for example, um, anybody that's never had an iPhone, this is a great place to start. Here you go. It's free with your contract. Like, why spend $400 on a phone you don't know how to use yet? And the fact that it's as fast and the camera is as good, hopefully that means that the 7 is going to be amazing. But um, I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing that they did. What they've done is... Um, They've taken Apple from being a premier, uh, premium, not premier, a premium product, mm-hmm. and they've become a company that makes things for everybody that has premier products. Mm. They haven't got rid of their premier products, but now they have things for people who don't want the premier. Sure. And I think it's a it's a fantastic business move on in my. That's actually yeah, that's phenomenally smart. To be honest with you, I think the ratio of people who will have the five SE over the six is going to be. It's got to be, I mean, this is a pure shot in the dark, but I assume so many more regular consumers are going to want the 5SE than the 6 Plus, you know what I mean? Right. Or the, six, the 6S or whatever. It's a, yeah, the 6S, I'm sorry. I, there's, a, there's a small part of me that considered for a second wanting to get one of these just because I have been wanting a smaller phone um, just because of all the everyday carry stuff. But I'm going to say something that's going to shock people right now. Um I would say that the choice to do this, even though I'm not going to get an iPhone SE, I would say that this is the smartest business move Apple has made all year. I agree with that, actually. That's pretty cool. Um, another product that they released, which is a similar, I would say, a similar strategy. They released um, the oddly named iPad Pro. 
<laughs> yes, there are two products called the iPad Pro. Why? Why did they do they that? They just have different sizes. I guess they didn't want to go iPad Pro Mini. I don't know. Um, I call it what it is: iPad Pro nine point seven. It's a nine nine point seven inch screen, which is the size of the original iPad. Um, this is a smart move as well because um a lot of people liked the features of the iPad Pro, including the the type cover to be able to type, mm-hmm. and uh, the four speaker system and the screen, which is is it is a gorgeous screen. Even though sure. I'm not a fan of the iPad Pro, um, and the ability to use the pencil. Everybody liked those features, but not everybody wanted an 11, 11 point something inch oh, screen. It's enormous. Um, so this brings it da- back down to a basically eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper size or yeah. smaller, actually. Um, so this is going to be available to a lot more people and it's going to be more accessible to people. Um, also a smart choice. Uh Two things I want to say about this, though. First of all, um, when Phil Schiller announced it, uh, he made kind of a terrible joke that um, I don't think he thought about too much. But he said, you know, he was saying, he says, there are still uh, six million PCs out there that are five years or older. Mm. And they're marketing the iPad Pro 9.7 as not a replacement for your iPad Pro, but a replacement for PCs. (laughs) <laughs> and okay uh number one i don't see how any ipad can replace a pc because it can't run all the software um sure. so that's dumb on their part but the thing that i don't think that phil schiller realized at least i don't know if anybody else noticed this but my first thought was wow that says a lot about a pc that people can still run them over five years because i can't get a macbook to last more than two and a half yeah no kidding Jeez, oops so I don't know. Uh, and going back to features, one other cool feature I wanted to point out in the iPad Pro, which I'm pretty sure will make its way to every other device eventually, at least uh, iPads and phones, um, True Tone Screen. And what this means is it uses the front-facing camera on the iPad to measure the color temperature of the room that you're in. Mm-hmm. and match the reflective quality of the colors on the screen just as okay. a, like a white uh their example was when you have a white piece of paper out it's not bright white it reflects the color temperature of the room that you're in that's the way that our eyes are used to seeing things nice. so, so the white will adjust and i think that's really cool personally well i mean it's funny because a lot of people won't really understand what that means mm-hmm um, but I mean, you you and I both work a little bit in video and photography, so we understand how skewing a color temperature on a given um, screen can dramatically change the way you perceive that image or video. <laughs> right. So, Perfect yeah. example for anybody who wants to see. Go watch any of my vlogs and find a scene where I recorded where there's a TV on the other side of the camera and look for the ugly blue hue on my face. <laughs> uh yeah, and I think that um, part of me wishes that um, they had released this feature before um, I wrote my Todoist article because in uh, my Todoist article about not going paperless, I talked about how technology companies are desperately trying to grab all the features of paper and bring them to the digital world. And this is one of the biggest examples I've seen, that they're yeah. literally trying to make this pad. Between that and the pencil, they're really trying to make this thing paper. 
Wow, that's really attractive to me, actually, because that's one of the, to be honest with you, the only real reason why I didn't even consider the iPad Pro was because of how enormous it was. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. So, yeah, so I mean, the, the fact that the form factor is going to change that much, and I'm assuming the weight and everything else that goes along with it is going to change as well, um, it might actually be a more viable device to me. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, it, it's, it goes back to the whole thing you were talking about with um, them thinking that this is somehow a PC replacement. I still hate typing on an iPad. I can't do it. And I mean, for guys like you and I, like we're, it's not like we're typing a sentence or two. You know, we're usually three or four paragraphs deep, you know what I mean? Right. And doing that level of word processing is just frustrating on a, a device that has no tactile feedback on a keyboard. I don't mind the tactile feedback on keyboards. I'm not a, I've never understood the clicky keyboard thing ever. Yeah. I'm like, as long as I push a button, I get the letter. I could care less. Um, uh, but the thing that bothers me most, and I don't think I've expressed this before, is the lack of a mouse pad. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know I can touch the screen and move around, but I can tell you right now, I have my Surface. My Surface has a touch screen, and I also have a keyboard and a mouse pad. And though I can touch the screen and use my fingers, there are certain things that you need to use the mouse pad, the trackpad for. You just yeah. if, there's a certain level when you're typing and you're navigating and you're you're clicking up to those menus to change a font or to underline or do something. If you're not using hotkeys, swiping up with your finger real quick and clicking that button is so much easier than reaching up and taking your hands out of the typing position, because you can reach down with those trackpads and use your thumb without moving your fingers far off of ASDF. Yeah, true. But the moment you touch that screen, you're resetting your hand completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that I think that's something that uh, there wasn't enough thought put into that, in my opinion. And I know that it's because iOS is not a mouse-based interface. So they would have had to rewrite the software completely. And I understand that. But it also, like you said, it makes it so that it cannot be a PC replacement for me. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I and there's... There are certain devices, like I, I know for my, my regular iPad Air, um, I got a separate keyboard um, that had a trackpad on it, um, and actually that made my experience with the iPad very different, but um, I still think that there needs to be something that's inherently built into the interface that doesn't require me to carry a second device in order to make that happen. <laughs> right. Because otherwise, why the hell don't I just carry a laptop around? I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what ended up happening. You know, I, I used it for novelty for a while. Um, but at some point, like I, I, I got a light enough laptop, like the, the laptop I'm using now weighs basically as much as an iPad and the keyboard put together. So why don't I just carry the laptop? It has more power, it has more capability, um, and, and is overall just an easier device for me to have around with the magical, but simple thing, which is definitely the trackpad. You know, I use that thing a lot. Right. You know? And I, 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 I think I've come to a similar place as well. Um, obviously I bought the surface hoping, um, to have that um, very portable but full computer experience. And though it comes way, way closer than the iPads do, even the Surface is not going to do it for me. I, I, yeah. can't, I can't run Premiere on the Surface right now. It just it crashes the whole computer. It restarts the whole thing. I don't yeah. know if it's a Windows problem or if it's Adobe problem. Um and it's it's so what I've come to the conclusion is what I need is this is this is my plan, assuming that I can gather about three thousand um, <laughs> dollars. My plan is to 
strip that surface of everything except for writing software and use yeah. it as a word processor and yeah. nothing more. Um, maybe play Skyrim on it. Um, that's it. And have it for that. It's perfect for that. I can take it somewhere. I can do that writing. I can uh, use the pen in one note and the handwriting recognition is brilliant. Um, and just have it for that. And then buy myself a MacBook um, Pro. Mm-hmm. Buy myself a MacBook Pro and buy myself a beautiful external monitor. There's these um, wide screen like extra wide for video editing screens that LG makes that are only 500 bucks. Oh yeah. They're gorgeous. Get one of those, get the magic uh, mouse, get the magic keyboard. And when I'm at home, stick that laptop behind there and use it as a desktop. And when I go places, I'll be able to edit portably and having those two devices, I'll be happy, but there is no place for an iPad in my workflow at all. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about the Surface, too, and I think Microsoft will probably figure this out, is, you know, that was one of the, the huge complaints about the Surface, um, was that it was just heavily underpowered. Um, and so, you know, for as a replacement for, for the, I guess, that most of the general public, it's, it's okay. Um, but for anyone who needs to do anything outside of the standard, um, you know, internet browsing slash word processing slash spreadsheet management, if you even looked at video editing, your computer is just going to blow up on you. You know what I mean? Like, it does... I think most of them don't have quad cores. They don't have hyper-threading. And, they don't and, even, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a single core. I could yeah, be wrong. Um, and, that's, and that's physically impossible to do any editing on. I mean, it's... I and think the reason... The graphics cards were really not powered well, and they didn't have a lot of RAM, nor did they have a lot of you know, storage space on the device itself and or swap space that you need when you're working with large video files. So well, it's just... Actually, uh, you might be thinking of an older older version because those last two are definitely not true. Um, oh, really? Oh, I have... I have eight gigs of RAM on this thing. Uh-huh. Um, I have a i i5 processor in it. Oh, really? Okay. And I have a terabyte of storage. Uh gotcha. Okay, that's definitely different from the first. Oh, wait. Like I, when I looked maybe at maybe I got five hundred. Sorry. Well, even so, I mean, anything more than the the the, the you know one hundred and twenty eight is 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 already enough. But like I remember when I was first looking at the Surface as a device, um, one of the reasons why I ended up going with the MacBook Pro was because there was just no. It, it just didn't have the capability. Like, it right. wasn't even close to as capable. And at the time, the price was much higher, too. So, yeah, you're probably right. Like, my knowledge of this of that device is probably a year and a half old. Yeah, uh, I think... I haven't really looked at it since. The the main thing with the video editing is just, I think it's because it's a single core. Um, and I could be wrong. Somebody might correct me. But my experience is that it couldn't handle it. I can play full-on... I can play Skyrim on the thing, no problem. Weird. And it, it so it, it definitely handles that... Um, and it might just be a software issue. Most of the issues that actually, I would say, this is strange to say, but um, when I first bought it, everything on it was perfect. But as they've slowly updated Windows 10, the compatibility with the Surface has gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as hardware goes, it it smokes. It's great. The problem is, is just things crash because driver incompatibilities and I don't know. I it's I've been so long out of the PC world that it's like diving into a foreign language again. I'm like, what does that mean? And that's what we forget about Mac is you never have to think about those things with the Mac. Yeah, like updating a video driver or one of the most annoying things. Like, yeah, I'm the same way. Like, I've been a Mac guy for probably the last five years, but uh, prior to that, I was a pretty big PC nerd. Like the last four PCs I've owned, I've built from the ground up. You know what I mean? 
Um, and I remember having to deal with crap like, you know, uh, driver incompatibility, backdating a driver because the latest version of the driver isn't compatible with half my software. I mean, it was it was a whole thing. Um, and I remember for any any one of us who who were PC users, like power PC users in that sense, um, we would we would literally have to Frankenstein our machines together, both from a hardware and a software perspective, just to make it do what we needed it to do. You know, right. So my MacBook Pro never had to deal with that. I, I mean, never the only, about the, only it. the only Frankenstein thing I've ever done to my MacBook Pro is added RAM on my own, just because I wanted to do something um, to tweak my machine. And to be honest with you, even at the time I did it, I didn't really need the RAM. I just wanted to do it. And um, I will tell you now that it, from a Mac perspective, holy crap, they make the MacBook Pro hard to get into. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I mean, obviously, the fact that uh, you don't need to do that is the reason they don't want to make you be able to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to keep things as is, which I can understand. Sure, I totally understand it. I get it. You know, I just, I, me being the tinkerer that I was, I pulled out my Torx 6 screwdriver, which, by the way, is harder to get than you think, at least it was at the time, <laughs> uh, because it didn't use standard screws. It used weird screws. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so, I mean, it was it was an endeavor. I pulled it off, but it was, it was quite the endeavor. So we are about reaching about an hour. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that we do what we had talked about last week, which was you yeah, said yeah. you'd be prepared for this week. And I hope you are because I'm putting you on the spot. Sure. Lamb, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Um, I'll start with music just because I've been on such a huge music kick lately. Um, the the three, well, I don't even know if I can narrow it down to three, but the, the, the big ones for me are um, this band called Junip, um, which is phenomenal. Um it's, it's Jose Gonzalez, uh, if anybody knows who that, who's, who that guy is. Um, just absolutely incredible, and you guys need to check it out. Uh, the second band is one that we both kind of find, found individually, um, which is Beirut. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love Beirut, um, and I've been, I've been d- diving through um, their catalog in order to, to, to find the morsels that I like. And then the last of the bunch, um, which is which is a band that I always really really liked, but didn't really appreciate as much when they were around, was Blur. Um, mm. You know, there are there are great songs in their their catalog that aren't really that aren't really that aren't really songs people think about. Like Coffee and TV, I thought was a really really good song, um, and it also had one of the most brilliant music videos ever. Um, it was about a milk carton that goes missing, uh, which is hilarious and ironic uh, in and of itself and so you you need to check that video out um and the song is also great as well plus blur is just awesome in general so at least on the music side that's for me i'll put what's what's uh, i'll put those in the links for sure that video and blur is one of my favorites as well um as far as music man i really haven't had a lot of time uh to listen to music but in the mail yesterday i received dredge's catch without arms album on vinyl which I've been looking nice. forward to having for a while. I I really really love that album. Uh, I had a very I had a job at the time where I was going from place to place every day. I had to go to a different location every day, and that was mm-hmm. my traveling album. And I did a lot a lot of spacing out and thinking to that album. And the moment I hear it, I can see a specific spot on certain roads, and like it's a trip, man. Uh, <laughs> so as far as music goes. That's where I am right now. Um, are you still Are you still listening to your uh, your Native American chant music as well? Not this week, but I definitely will go back to it because that stuff is rad. Uh, mm-hmm. So, what are you reading? Nice. 
Uh, three things that have almost uh, nothing to do with each other. Um, the first one is a book that uh, my friend Emily had recommended to me a while back called Some by a guy named David Eagleman. Um, and it's basically short, 40 short stories about the afterlife. Um, and it is one of the most, there are some that are very funny. There are some that are really, really dauntingly scary. Like there, obviously because I'm thinking about my own mortality right now, there's, 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 there's just a little bit of something for everybody in it, and I found it to be a really fast and really interesting read, so I, I definitely recommend that. Um, the next one is a book by Simon Garfield um, about it called Just My Type, um, and it's about typography and, because I'm a huge type nerd, um, and I've been a type nerd pretty much for the last 20 years of my life, so I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with um, the construction of fonts lately, basically since our first uh, podcast where we talked a little bit about design. Um, and then kind of along those same lines, um, there's another book, um, that I've been kicking around, um, by David McCandless. I think it's David McCandless called information is beautiful. And, uh, it's basically a giant book full of really well-crafted infographics that you could stare at for hours. Um, and so I've been fascinated with that book lately. Have you ever thought of, uh, getting into hand-drawn fonts? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like I, I it's, but it's such an endeavor, <laughs> mm. you know, and you have to have an apparatus for it, like a, a, a real drafting table. It's funny because my dad back in the day used to do that. Um, he used to typeset by hand um, and he used to use, you know, cellophane and, and, and blocks and all this kind of stuff. I and mean, he had a full on printing press. So it was it was it's kind of in my blood. But just watching what he had to go through in order to just construct a sentence <laughs> was such was such a daunting task that I don't think in my current life I could I could really take it on either you know logistically or financially but i'd love to do it at some point like if i ever became rich enough i would build a design room and i would just sit there and make fonts all day there's a there's a guy named sean sean yeah sean wes mm-hmm. um i'll put the links in the show notes you should check him out he does hand-drawn fonts um he doesn't even use a drafting table he basically just uses a, a lead holder and a, a ruler Geez, that's a lot of talent. Yes, yeah. man. They, making fonts for anyone that doesn't appreciate the the the, the time that goes into fonts, um, with the exception of Comic Sans. I hate Comic Sans. <laughs> Comic Sans can die in a fire, but beyond Comic Sans, it, I mean, just to construct a, a font, like if you ever look at at, at the the cleanliness of a font like Bodoni um, or Garamond, and just to literally go through and, and measure the ratios between all of the various parts is just astounding. Like it's such a science and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. The whole kerning thing is just, it blows my mind, uh, going, you know, like, okay, well this letter rounds. So where do you, where do you choose the the spacing point? Do you choose it as the apex of the roundness of the O or at the normal space, you know, like just getting the letter letters to match up correctly where it doesn't look like there's a space in the middle of the world a world in the middle of the word is brilliant. Yeah, I mean for anyone who hasn't seen it there's a there's a pretty cool documentary on Netflix called Helvetica mm-hmm. um, where they literally go through the construction of the the Helvetica font and how it's used and all of its different permutations and as a design nerd I I was utterly fascinated by by that documentary. Yeah, that's a fascinating documentary. What I also I'm not going to go on the tangent on this one but also watched, I think the same day, Objectified. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That's a good one as well. Industrial design, cool movie. Um, mm-hmm. what am I reading right now? What are you, yeah, what are you reading, man? Uh, I just finished reading Super Better, 
Jay McGonigal. I've mentioned it many times on this podcast. Um, I, I, I had trouble actually rating it. I wasn't sure whether to give it a three or a four. Uh, so I guess it's a 3.5 for me out of five. Yeah. Um, it's self-help type book, but it's, it's very based in science and the science of using games to achieve things. Um, and the psychological benefits as well as the physiological benefits of gaming. Um, it's it's a really interesting book. I, I would suggest people read it. I'm also rereading one of my favorite short story collections, which is The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God by Edgar Carrot. He's an Israeli writer. Uh, for anybody who ever saw the movie Wrist Cutters, Wrist Cutters is based on a short story by Edgar Carrot that is in this collection called Neller's Happy Campers. By the way, Tom Waits is also in that movie. <laughs> Tom, Tom is everywhere, dude. Well, um, it's there's it's hard to describe this collection. Um, there's a lot of humanity in it and a lot of sick sense of humor, and it just kind of goes all over the board. But it's just the writing is very concise, and it's he's 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 quite brilliant. Um, he can make a very simple sentence sound quite profound. Uh, I recommend it as well and then after that i'm also finishing up books here and there that i haven't picked up in a while like uh life-changing magic of tidying up which i got to the point where she said to throw away some of my books and i was like eh, i lost interest but um that's about it what do you what are you watching um for better or for worse i've delved back into lost again um which is funny because I think the first time through, I kind of, I had an arrogance about Lost. Um, well, no, it's not an arrogance. I, I approached it with a, a relative uh, disdain because so many people were so high on the show that I didn't want to be that high on it. So I'm giving it a chance again, uh, and I'm going through it from literally episode one. Um, but I, I'm starting to find now that, with especially with a show like Lost, I think it came around... Uh, in a time when my my expectations of my shows were lower, um, and so the writing isn't that great to me um, as it as it once felt like it was, um, and some of the characters are actually really annoying. the The themes are great. It's it it was the first of its kind, I suppose. So I, I suppose any pioneer is going to have its inherent flaws. Um, but I, I I'm I don't know. I I don't have that that sense of wonder about it because I've already kind of seen it. So. I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm going to give it a thorough watching. I'm going to give it a, a, a complete chance again just to see it. And that's a, that's a good segue back into one of your original questions. That's a really long series. How are you watching it? Are you binge watching it? You're just watching episode a day? How are you, how are you going through that? Um, I think because of the level of complexity in that. Well, it's not that complex. I mean, it's complex enough. But I'm, I'm watching it probably um, in bits and pieces because um, Crystal's kind of watching it with me. So... She has a tendency to go ahead of me, so I have to go back and I have to watch episodes that she's watched. So I'm kind of watching Lost out of sequence, which is probably not a great idea. <laughs> so it's it's the most confusing most confusing thing in the whole world right now. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe how maybe I should just stop watching it entirely um, and 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 just start from scratch on my own without jumping back and forth like that. Um, and the second thing that I'm I'm itching to watch, but I haven't had a chance to yet, is uh, Daredevil season season two. Me too. <laughs> I haven't have, started have you seen it, it yet. Have you Have you seen any of it? Nope, I haven't touched it yet. That uh, I've been eagerly looking to start that, and then 
Apparently, there's a documentary called "Beware the Slender Man" that's supposed to hit HBO. Oh yeah. So that those are the two things that I are on deck for me, but I have not dived into them yet. Mm, nice. I'm looking forward to Daredevil, though. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I hear that it's. I don't know how much darker you can get than the first season, but apparently they're going to hit it even harder. So we'll we'll see. I I, I like this direction that that Marvel Studios is kind of going um, with with all of these these Netflix shows. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like there were. De- um, Watch my face. Jessica Jones was definitely a good series, um, but I definitely think they went a little too far in the other direction. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like we've talked about what makes that show great and some of the things we would have wanted to change, but I overall like the direction of where the uh, Marvel Universe is headed with these shows. What's fascinating for me with both of those shows is to see how the second season is going to play out in both of them, because like we had said before, they were so driven by the brilliance of, of the actors playing the villains. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, Daredevil without Vincent D'Onofrio is going to be um, it, that's a challenge, and then uh, you know yeah. Jessica Jones without um, David Tennant will be a challenge as well. So uh, how they deal yeah. with those will be um, a testament to how the show is built. And it kind of goes back to some of the uh, David Tennant in particular goes back to one of the things that we talked about previously too, which is he's a bad guy, but I kind of root for him um, because it's such a great performance in that in in that series. Um, I, I, in in all honesty, he makes the series for me. Exactly my point. Yeah, and that that's what's going to be interesting to see. I also read that they finally cast um, the Iron Fist. Oh, really? So that mm-hmm. they can start rounding out the defenders. Sure, sure. Um, as far as anything, I don't know that I'm particularly watching. I mean, I'm trying to finish up um, NCIS, mm-hmm. which uh, I think we've talked about briefly before. It's one of those shows, like, once again, it's it's not like what you're saying about Lost. It's not that it's brilliant, but I like it. And there's a lot of heart in it. Actually, here's an interesting thing. This is this is a strange anomaly, and I'm going to go really into, uh, into the weeds here. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so they have a, I'm in, I think I'm in season 11. And there's a crossover episode because they're trying to promote their new show. Oh, what, 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 wow, that was brilliant. Or what was a new show at the time that the season was filmed, which is NCIS New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about NCIS New Orleans is it has one of my favorite TV actors, which is Scott Bakula, because I was a huge mm-hmm. Quantum Leap fan. I even, oh, yeah. I even made it through um, what was kind of terrible um, Star, Star Trek Enterprise because uh, because uh. he was in it. It's such a bad show. But he was, I mean, I just, I think he's, as far as television goes, he's really good. Um, yeah. So they had the crossover episode and like literally the whole point of these two episodes is to introduce the characters for the new show using the old show. You know, they're banking on collateral. Um, if there's a scene where they're introducing the first two characters, Scott Bakula and then who's his, you know, his right hand guy. And you're just seeing the back of this right-hand guy's head. I haven't even seen this guy's face. And he says about three words. And just the way his, he, it's not his actual voice, but just the drawl of his actual accent um, and his voice. Mm -hmm. I said, wow, that reminds me of somebody. And as he's talking, and the camera still hasn't gone around to his face, I'm, I'm placing it in my head, you know, calculating it. And I'm remembering... Do you remember the little boy from Sling Blade, Lucas Black? Yeah. 
Uh-huh. And I this is where I go into the weeds. I also knew him better as I used to watch a show called American Gothic. They only made yeah, one, yeah. one season show. of it. Mm-hmm. His his actually going back to your American horror story, his sister in that is um I can't remember her first name, but Paulson. Um the she plays the reporter in season two of wow. American <laughs> Horror Story. But anyways, uh I'm like, oh my god, it's it that's totally that voice totally sounds like that that kid. I've never seen him as an adult. It's just it reminds me of that kid. And the camera whips uh-huh. around and I'm looking at it and I'm all that could be him. It kind of looks like him. So then I look it up online. It is him. He has a he's a full grown man now. Obviously he's about my age. He has a man's voice, but something about the way he spoke in like three words, I remembered him as a child. Wow. That's and strange. To, and to take us further into the weeds, um, I was just gonna say that you just Kevin Baconed us. And I forgot about the one other thing that I was watching, which is the Kevin Bacon show, the following. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. What season are you in? Uh, I'm re-watching it from the very beginning, so I'm halfway through the first season. I have not watched season three yet, but I've watched the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, season one, I've uh, actually, I will say this. The first episode of that show mm-hmm. is amazing. Great episode, yeah. The rest of the show is good. Yeah, but I agree. Not nothing lives up to that first episode. Sure. And especially as it, as it goes along further, it gets convoluted at certain points, but... Not a bad show overall. Mm-hmm. Um, Iceman's good in it. What's his name? The, the actor. Oh, uh, the kid who plays yeah. Iceman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, God, he's 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 like a, it's, we always forget. You know, it's it, it's it's because we go we we take journeys and we we there's no way you can research journeys. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I'm googling him right now. Um, yeah, I don't I, remember. I am DBing him. <laughs> Sean Ashmore. Okay, I didn't. Apparently, I never. Oh, knew. Ashmore. That's- yeah. I don't think I ever knew his name, so that's probably why I didn't remember it. <laughs> oh, by the way, interesting um, documentary I just saw the other day you should check out. It is called uh, Se- oh, Shoot. <laughs> Very semi-serious. <laughs> Jeez, you can tell we're old men because we, we remember about 40% of what we think we want to say. If you came here for information, you came to the wrong place. Yeah, or you're going to get some of it, but we're going to make you fight for the rest. This is not the Wikipedia podcast. <laughs> Definitely. This is the We Lost a Few Pieces of Our Brain Like Swiss Cheese podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very semi-serious. It's a HBO documentary on the comics department of the new yorker uh huh interesting it's pretty fantastic um for a documentary i mean hbo's quality of documentaries are pretty dead on and uh there's moments in this that actually surprise me considering the content there's there's a few very serious moments um very emotional moments and uh it got me and i'm like whoa there's a lot of heart in this movie that i didn't expect to be there and uh, I follow, I guess if you can say follow, I watch the New Yorker's Snapchat. And I would say that if, I don't know a lot about brands on Snapchat. Yeah. But um, they're kind of nailing it in the sense that it's brilliant. Like they have one day a week where um, I don't know who the people are, but two two women. I think one's like a managing editor. Mm-hmm. They explain what the cover of the week is, the artwork on the cover um, tell you a little bit of history on on it, a little bit of history of the artist, 
that happens mm-hmm. once a week. Um, then they do their f- now famous um, New Yorker caption contest, which is when they put up a comic that has no caption under it and uh, offer for people to send in captions, and then they pick the best caption. Oh, interesting. They've been doing that for possibly the history of the magazine very long time. But now with social media, I think it's even hotter. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember them doing I, I remember they've been doing that for quite some time, actually. Yeah, and then they, another day they do um, comic department, and it's just two people from the comics department uh, showing you the comics. Like, here's this comic today. It's it's a really it's really engaging. They do a really good job. But the reason I bring it up is, um, documentary was made several years ago, mm-hmm. and the guy who is on the Snapchat is in the documentary. Like you see him in there, and it's it's kind of weird, um, almost like this. I think when you encounter people on social media and then Mm -hmm. you see them in another medium, there's a weird disconnect. You know, it's not like, um, you know, Gwen Stefani. You know who Gwen Stefani is already. Mm -hmm. If you find her on a social media, that's not that strange. But encountering somebody first on a social media and then finding them in a movie or in a TV show or something like Mm -hmm. that, there's a strangeness to that for me. Yeah, I had a chance to meet a guy actually, um, one of the the golf guys that I I was working with on my my golf Instagram. Um, <clears throat> I had a chance to sit down and have lunch with him um, a week ago, and it was the weirdest thing <laughs> to to see him move and to 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 know that he had a voice was very very strange. Yeah, there's I I think that um, <laughs> it's hard to say everybody's experience, but it seems that to some degree. There's almost an imaginary friend aspect to people online. <laughs> you know, it's like like you're pretty sure that that person exists, but there's part of your brain that hasn't fully digested that that person exists. So whenever you see them in anything outside of that one little fenced-in area, mm-hmm. it, there's a small part of your mind that explodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And or seeing, uh, you know, if you if you watch a sitcom for long enough, assuming that that the, the person that you see on screen is the exact same person you'll meet in real life. I wonder, I wonder what kind of experience that is for people who, you know, if, like if you're on a long standing um, sitcom of some kind and you run into a fan and you happen to be very different than the person you are in the show, like what that must feel for you. You know what I mean? Right. It's uh, it's got to be weird because, you know, be- people want you to be that person. And Sure. Um. Uh, one time, Carlos and I were at the uh, Los Angeles Bowl, Hollywood Bowl, Hollywood Bowl, <laughs> yeah. um, seeing Radiohead, and we spotted, uh, what's his name, Michael C. Hall from Dexter, the guy who plays Dexter. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But this was uh, when Dexter, before Dexter became like a social phenomenon, like I think it was still season one. Yeah. And so nobody knew who he was yet. You know, there was a few of us that were watching the show. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm pointing him out to Carlos and Carlos just yells first, first, yeah, he yells, Michael. And he turns and looks. And I think he was shocked because if anybody knew who he was, they would have just called him Dexter. Right. Sure. Sure. Uh, he goes, Michael. And he looks at us and he goes, love your show. And that was just kind of like the end of our interaction there. <laughs> But I, I, there was a weird shock on his face, and I think it was a shock that he's like, somebody knows my actual name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it got worse as the show got more popular. But Oh, yeah. Hey, 
At least people well, know who you are, right? I've got a funny full circle for you on that one too, mm-hmm. which is um, so I was also at a Radiohead show and uh, there was a guy moving boxes from uh, the back of the venue, which was the Fillmore in San Francisco. And it turned out to be Phil Selway, who was the drummer of Radiohead. Whoa. And, uh, yeah. And no one knew who he was. He was just this random, you know, bald-headed dude just carrying stuff in. And uh, I had a chance to have a conversation with Phil, Phil freaking Selway um, right as the, the Benz, which is the Radiohead second, second album, uh, came out. And uh, I, ha- I was able to take a picture with him um, with my, my 18-year-old face. And my friend Carlos currently has that picture. So a Carlos and a Radiohead reference all in the same reference for both of us. (laughs) 